Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. There's no take two. There's no just a little more purple. Warts and all, you've downloaded the VO Radio Show. Whenever an artist was going to be on Top of the Pops, they had to re-record their song for Top of the Pops. And that was policed by the uh, Musicians' Union. Uh, one of the artists that I worked with doing that was Iggy Pop and the Stooges, which was fantastic. They were really cool and could really play. Like really good insight into their band. And that's Chris Dickey, who'll be joining us later in the show. And coming to you via the Road K2 is another episode of the VO Radio Show. My name's Andrew Peters in Melbourne and in Sydney. It's Robbo. How you going, mate? I'm going okay. How are you going? I'm going really well. Thank you very much. It's been another busy week, but we love that. We do love that. Now, we were having a bit of a chat and a play around with uh, Source Connect just a little while ago, mm. and uh, that's a good discussion point because you're talking about Source Connect now, aren't you? Yeah, I've been playing around with it, um, just having a look at it. It's kind of interesting for something that's free. It's um, it's very powerful. You can connect at all your, your regular uh, Source Connect sample rates and all the rest of it. You can connect up to four people at once, which I find is really helpful especially if there's anybody out there who who like us are podcasters if you you know um yeah really really interesting it's um you basically have one person who has their account uh open and then you can invite pretty much anybody you want just by sending an email and a password and they log into your account effectively although they can't see all your details of course and um and you basically connect that way so um, I guess the only downside is if you are recording uh, with four people and you want to separate that, you can't. All you get out is what comes out of your sound card. For me, I'm on a uh, I'm on an Mbox Pro uh, on the laptop that I use for my connections, um, and then that goes for me into a 002 rack. But I can only get the stereo out of the Mbox Pro. So if I was recording with four people, I would just have a stereo mix of. Well, in inverted commas, stereo, because they'd all be mono, but a stereo mix of those four callers. So um, that's the only drawback. But, um, yeah, very powerful. It's interesting because I think they're in a beta stage. We should actually mm. uh, maybe, maybe make a call to Rebecca yeah. uh, at Source Connect or Source Elements to find out what the story is. But I, I have spoken to Rebecca about... Uh, this and the beta stage, but they will be monetizing, I think, in the future. I'm sure they will. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at it now. The online beta version, it says that I'm, I've just opened up beta version 0.5.4 is the one that I'm talking about. Yep. Now, you've been having issues with um, IPDTL, is that correct? Yeah, we've been having real sorts of, all sorts of issues. I, I just, just to sort of fill you in the loop, for everybody who's listening is I, I also do another podcast with an, another mate of mine uh, who lives a fair way out of Sydney, in fact, about 300 kilometres out of Sydney, and we record once a week. Uh, and we were using IPDTL only because he doesn't have a studio and not really sort of audio-minded, and so it was nice and easy for him to use. 
and we, we've been chugging along quite well with them for a year until they changed things about three or four weeks ago and we've been having all sorts of dropouts and connection issues and when I brought the problem up with with uh, with the corporation, I was told that basically we were being routed from Sydney or Bathurst up through Southeast Asia somewhere and then back. So um, our connection speeds are woeful. So... I'm not quite sure the full details of that as yet. I'm waiting to have an email answered to find out what's going on there and why that's the case. But um, yeah, all sorts of ugly issues with them at the moment. From what I'm hearing from people uh, in other parts of the world, it uh, works perfectly. That may be the problem is that it's sort of being developed for uh, the Europe and America and, and maybe Australia and sort of Southeast Asia are becoming an afterthought. I'm not sure, but um. Yeah, I, 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 as I say, I need some more clarification from them as to what's actually going on to to know to be able to answer exactly why we're having these troubles. But um, yeah, not not helpful at the moment, that's for sure. Mm, okay, well, let's keep an eye on Source Connect now and just uh, see how that plays out. But uh, yeah, we'll have to experiment. Indeed, we will. We shall. We won't even try and record next week's show on it. How's that? Yeah, that's a great idea, and we should try and get hold of Rebecca. Maybe she could be our guest. There you go. God, yeah. now you're thinking. Yeah, I'm always, I'm always thinking. <laughs> the voice for the voices. This is the VO Radio Show. Now, talking about recording remotely, mm. like mm. You know, connecting us together with Source Connect or IPDTL. Mm. The discussion we wanted to have this week is um, what you expect from someone like me. So if I'm a talent sitting in my studio yeah. here, what do you expect at your end? Okay, I uh, I guess people who I record with remotely and there's uh, Lofty Fulton, g'day to you, a great Australian voiceover talent who I record with regularly. Um, we connect via Skype uh, and he records at his place. He has a, a, a setup there. Now he and everybody else who sends to me, I just get a 16-bit mono, 48K. And if they want to send anything higher than that, then that's fine. But that's my minimum. Um, and it works well. It can go into Pro Tools. You can do what you want with it. And there's no, you know, there's no, no problems with that. Uh, he doesn't touch the audio. He basically just goes... Through, I think he's got a 416. I've never actually seen his setup. I think he's got a 416 into a preamp. I'm not sure which one it is, but it sounds very nice. Uh, and then he uses um, Adobe Audition to record on uh, and then sends to me from there. So he doesn't touch the audio at all, which is exactly what I'd require. And um, yeah, it sounds good every time. Okay, so normally I try and send out uh, WAV files 4824. Yep. But every now and then, in fact, not every now and then, it seems to be almost daily, mm. um, I get a request for, don't worry about the WAV file, send me mm. an MP3. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, as far as I'm concerned, MP3 is not a professional format. Um, it's like saying to, to, to the TV station, I'm, I'm just going to deliver you an MP4. It's not usable in a professional situation, you know. It's okay for record companies. They'll convert it, download it to your iPhone and I'll listen to it on the bus on the way to work. But it's not It's not designed to be a professional format and you can't start with an inferior product and make it better. Yeah. You know, you, you, you need to start with a, a quality file that sounds great because you've, you've got to realise, especially in this digital age, that by the time you send me the file... I then ingest it into my workstation and do with it what I'm going to do. And then I might export that as an audio file 
to send to my client, then they'll ingest that into their system and they'll do their manipulation with it and they'll, then they'll output it to a master. If you start with something that's inferior in quality to begin with, by the time you go through all that process, you've lost so many ones and zeros that, you know, who knows what's going on. Yeah. Look, there are people out there who disagree with me. I constantly have conversations with people at, ra- especially radio stations who believe that MP3 is broadcast quality. Yep. I'm sorry, it's not, you know, it's just mm. not, it's not designed to be, it was never meant to be. Uh, and it, it certainly doesn't sound like it. So um, I, yeah. I don't quite understand their arguments. I, like I, I can understand the reason why you would go to an MP3 if it's 48 at 320. Mm. If you've got a, a, you know, a session that went for half an hour and you've got to get that file FTP to cross, it speeds mm. things up. Mm. But mm. if like we have, if you spend money on, you know, high quality gear to make mm. the sound the mm. best it could possibly be, mm. it seems kind of weird to start compressing before it's even been touched. Yeah. But at the same time too, I would suggest that if you've got it, if you get, if you know you're going to record a session and you, that the, the talent at the other end is going to be sending you a half hour or is going to need to be sending you a half hour WAV file, Organise your day so that there's, you know, two hours between the end of the session and when you need the audio to start work so that they can just send you a professional file. It just comes down to a bit of organisation. Yeah, but, you know, the trouble is these days, of course, everything's changed with mobile phones and email. Everybody expects everything to be done now. Yeah, look, that's true. But at the same time, there are things that, that don't change. Besides radio stations and, and, and some in-house facilities, I don't know too many places that have the, the ability to go, we need to walk in the door now, we, we've only got 10 minutes to get this done, and especially with a TV commercial or something like that, if, it, if you're an agency. You know, these things are, are sorted out months ahead. Yeah. Um, look, you know, uh, I think uh, as, as the internet gets better and faster and all that sort of stuff, I don't think there's any excuse for MP3. I really don't. Well, our guest this week is someone who would never have seen an MP3 when he was uh, working at Rack Studios in London. In fact, no, none I of that technology existed. So uh, no. uh, this is old school. This is an API desk and uh, beautiful microphones and yeah, uh, you right. know, all sorts of gear. In fact, it, the introduction of the drum machine was his era. And, oh, really? Uh, there's there an interesting go. story about how he got the drum sound for the Thompson Twins. Hmm, okay. I look forward to hearing that. Okay, well, our special guest this week, Chris Dickey. In a world. In a world where only the best voice will do. Realtimecasting.com. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Your career kicked off, I'm guessing, as a musician, a bass player. Is that correct? Yeah, in the days of punk rock. Based in Coventry with a uh, local band, and none of us really knew how to play at that time. Uh, but all around us, there was music, punk rock, two tone. So it was a very musical place at the time. Did you actually get a contract or release a record? The band I was in released two singles and had a contract with uh, an offshoot of a publishing company that put a label together to release the band. And uh, we were being compared to people like Duran Duran and uh, other bands of that ilk, but we were nowhere near as good. The band experience introduced me to having... A good, a good view of the, the industry from the perspective of the musician, rehearsal rooms, recording studios and touring, live sound and the whole kind of gamut of what we do. Of those things, it was the uh, studios that really got me interested. 
and workshopping songs in rehearsal studios really got me interested. So it's kind of that, that was the areas that I pursued. I never liked being on stage. I liked the party involved in being a musician and being in a band and that, but there was a lot of uh, sleeping in the back of the transit van on cold nights in England during tours and things that wasn't much fun. So what what was the appeal about the studio? The, the, I remember the first time I walked into a recording studio, uh, it was in Wilston uh, in London, and uh, the microphone stands all in their little area and the mics, the whole kind of environment you're in and the, the focus being totally around creating music and, and a mixing desk and somebody operating it, was, that, that was pretty cool as well, but it took me a long time to get my head around how all that stuff worked. But the, that kind of creative environment was, was really good to be in. So how did you get into working in the studio? It kind of transitioned from being in a band and the band had toured and, and things like that and released some records and, and done some Radio 1 sessions and, and things. And uh, then the band split up, Musical Differences, and we all went and did our own things. And I, I got some work working with a small PA company in, in Coventry and we'd go and do gigs at uh, universities and polytechnics and thing and in amongst the bands we were doing there were things like Bo Diddley the birthday party Nico and uh, the Blue Orchids and so there were some really quality acts that we were working with in, in these various different venues so I was getting a good insight into uh, these kind of really interesting artists so I started writing recording studios with a view of getting a job in a recording studio and it took a year and it took about 100 letters of refusal um, before I'd got one the live work that I'd been doing really paid a dividend because I'd, I was uh, ended up getting a job at Rack Studios in London, which was owned by Mickey Most. They had a recording truck, so uh, as well as having two API recording studios, they also had an API recording truck that would go out and do location gigs. And uh, so my live work really paid off in that environment because it was familiar ground for me. So, yeah, that's how I got my start at Rack Recording Studios, which is still a viable studio in London. Um, it's still producing really good records out of there. So it's had a long history of uh, successful records and it's a really good facility in St. John's Wood. So when you uh, first got behind the desk to actually record a record as opposed to, to live stuff, do you remember what band it was or what act it was? It took a, actually took a long time to get on the on the desk and start to recording. In those days, you start in the studio as a tape-op, and the tape-op was opening the doors and making the teas and going out and getting the lunches and operating the tape machine. And the first bands I was operating the tape machine for would be uh, Hot Chocolate, Kim Wilde, Racy would come in and they'd kind of done their, their hits, but they'd come in and do demos and things. Steve Harley, he came in. And a fellow called Adrian Gervitz and his brother would come in and uh, they'd had a big hit with Classic, rather Classic in the Attic at that time. And they came in and did follow-up records and never were as, as successful. Rack Records at that time had a viable record company and uh, was quite a creative place in, in its kind of pop culture. Uh, which was a bit weird for me coming in from the punk kind of culture. So there was a bit of a culture shock for me. But at the same time, we had the other studios and record, London-based record companies will put artists into those studios. And so we work on a cross-section of rack recordings and other recordings that came through there. Uh, there was a lot of uh, kind of bands like Simply Red and The Pogues. Uh, Thompson Twins came through there, Robbie Neville. And we had producers there that would like to come to to the place because they had a really good recording facility and really good rooms to record in. And amongst the producers, there was Steve Lillywhite and Alex Adkin and Stuart Levine. 
I assume the first producer you worked with was Alex Sadkin, is that correct? Well, I mean, he was a very, he was a big influence on me and it was great working with Alex, but there was a whole lot of other producers. We would do a lot of work with Mickey because he owned the studio, he owned the record label, he owned the publishing company. It was very much Mickey's place and he would often have projects on the go that we would work on. So he would have been one of the people I was working with quite a lot. There was a fellow called Dennis Bavell. He came in and produced bands like Orange Juice. And as a kind of tape-op, you're learning your, your craft, you're, you're learning what the engineers do. And so they'd be the people that teach you how to do things and show you show you different methods of doing things. And then we'd have freelance engineers coming in as well. And of those engineers, there were people like uh, Greg Jackman, Pete Schweer, Will Gosling, Phil Thornelly, Mike Nacito. And Mike Nacito became a member of Johnny Hayes Jazz, uh, Phil Thornalley was in The Cure and been a really successful songwriter writing uh, the song Torn uh, he worked with uh, the Thompson Twins and engineered a lot of that successful records there Pete Shear was um, with ZTT and working out with Trevor Horn <coughs> and uh, Will retired after an accident which was very sad and Greg Jackman was always uh, he would be an engineer for the Moody Blues uh, loads and loads of British acts and British made records and there was another fellow who came in uh, a producer called Pip Williams who was very influential as well so when we were working in there there was a really big cross-section of artists that you would work with and different techniques you'd see employed there The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound Radio TV Sound Design Find it all at voodoo-sound.com so what was your big break to um, get behind the desk? Well, you kind of get thrown in on the on the sessions that were maybe not of of as much significance. So at that time, there would be a few sessions like that. There used to be the jingle sessions that came in, and they were three-hour sessions, and you had to get the whole thing recorded. So you get a producer come in who was the jingle guy, and, and they'd record all the music, uh, bring the backing singers, record the backing singers, record the singer whatever it might be and uh, then you'd have to mix it all and that would have to be a three-hour session start to finish if you went over three hours it'd be overtime for the musicians and you didn't want to do that uh, and so that would keep you on your toes and that would get you started there were top of the pops uh, recordings so when whenever an artist was going to be on top of the pops they had to re-record their song for top of the pops and that was policed by the uh, musicians union so you'd have um, three hours again and you'd have artists come in and perform their song and we'd do a quick mix of it. But again, that would be uh, a quick three-hour session where you had to be really on your toes and get things done. And uh, one of the artists that I worked with doing that was Iggy Pop and the Stooges, which was fantastic. They were really cool and could really play. It was like really good insight into their band. That a lot of the art of recording, a lot of the art of listening was learned whilst you weren't operating the desk because you'd have to be uh, dropping in and out of recording the tape machines. In those days, it was... Uh, two-inch tape machines and when you went in to record you erased what was already there and when you dropped out of record you'd drop out in time to keep what was pre-recorded and so in that way you, you'd have to be really on your toes making sure you're really listening to where the bars and the beats were and the vocals were and things like that and taking your cues off what was pre-recorded or taking your cues off the engineer or the producer telling you where to drop in and drop out and to the detail of getting a syllable uh, from a word and if you didn't get it the first time, then you'd have to get it the second time. So there was, a, I remember doing a 12-hour vocal recording session with Adrian Gervitz when it was dropping in and dropping out of record to uh, get the performance vocal. So yeah, that, that kind of thing got your chops up. 
I was going to say, you know, everyone's used to digital now. In fact, probably most of the audience of this have only ever known digital. But to be dropping in and out like that as you're doing it live would be <laughs> unbelievably difficult. Well, it's something that, because where I'm teaching at the moment, it's one of the things that all the kids grow up with Pro Tools and able to defer decision-making and able to have a visual cue on where they are in the song. So when we go to doing two-inch sessions with the students, quite a lot of them freak right out because they suddenly have no visual cue and they suddenly have to be listening a lot more intently than they were previously to know where they are in the song. So all that old craft is uh, still very valid. And one of the things that can tie you up in knots in studios these days is deferring decisions. If you don't make decisions as you go, then uh, you can end up with a multitude of decisions to make uh, further down the track. Yeah, well, it's certainly a bit different to uh, to now. Going back to recordings, they let me do a recording with Steve Harley. It was a, a song called Dino, I think, and they were happy with that. And so then they had the confidence to be able to throw me in on, on another session when the next one came up. So what, what is an engineer's job for anyone that's listening now? Uh, so that depends on the environment you're in. These days, I mean, in the days when I started, there used to be the three people in the recording team. There would be the producer, and it was their responsibility to, to take care of the, the making of the record uh, and the logistics of the record and nurturing the artist and getting the best out of them and working with the record company to make sure the record company get the result as well. And then there would be the engineer, and the engineer would take care of the recording and the technical aspects of the recording. And it's still the job of the engineer these days. And so that would be mic selection. That would be uh, whereabouts in the acoustic environment you're going to use for the recording, the EQs, you know, getting the sound, compression, placing it in the in the mix and things like that. Uh, and then there would be the assistant or tape op, and they would take care of the kind of putting a microphone in place, wiring, cabling it in, using the patch bay, operating the tape machine, taking care of the stuff that the engineer wanted to offload, generally taking care of the sort of running of the studio. So these days, quite often, you'll end up in a situation where all those three roles are, are the one, and that's the person who's in the studio. So I would say most records these days are either started off or in some way a home recording that is the sole responsibility of the one person who needs to know how to work Pro Tools, needs to know how to do all the microphones, get the sounds up, and a whole load more stuff than we used to have to know. When I started in studios, there was a two-inch tape machine, a mixing desk, and there might have been three or four different types of compression. We had a tape delay and a plate reverb. And then we had to campaign as engineers to get digital reverbs and digital delays. And we ended up getting AMS reverbs, AMS delays, and then Lexicon 24X. And that was it. We were geared up then. Whereas these days, there's so much more gear to, to get up to speed on. And your ability to operate Pro Tools is uh, really big and know your shortcuts and keep up with the latest updates and uh, recording methods. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One of the things that was a massive benefit in the old days was you would be able to be a fly on the wall 
in a working capacity, as you learnt your trade, to lots of different recording methods and techniques and the way different people made records. That's hard to come by these days. It's interesting because there is, you know, the similarity between, um, you know, recording a band like you did and, you know, these days as a, a voiceover guy. Of course, now we're sitting at home in studios and all of a sudden we have to place the microphone. We probably have to produce ourselves unless someone's down the line. We have to record it. So we've got to be aware of the sound to make sure the sound's correct and everything else. Yeah. And do you have somebody uh, guiding you through that, as in producing you at the same time, or is that gone as well now? Sometimes, but uh, in a lot of cases, no. Well, that, that's one of the great things about Pro Tools and all the gear we got now, because you can be a satellite studio, satellite in and accept files. If it's not right, instead of incurring lots of studio time while you're waiting for the decision to be made, you can do a few alternative versions and uh, replace them. So I like the old school. I understand the convenience of the new school, but there was something, you know, kind of romantic about it, I think, you know. It's pretty cool. So when you when you got in, though, you kind of in the 80s. first year I was in recording studios was the first year that drum machines had really started to be employed on records. And so uh, we uh, had these fantastic facilities with really great recording rooms for drums. And uh, in the first year there, I think I recorded three drum kits and every other session was a drum machine. And uh, we had the uh, Lin drum coming quite a lot. We had a, uh, oh, I forgot the name of it. There's a, there was a fantastic drum that they used on the uh, Thompson Twins records, which was more of a computer looking thing. And uh, the OBX, they were the three forerunners. In order to make the drum machines sound more real, we would do things like we'd send the sound of the snare drum out to a room. On top of that snare drum, you'd put a, a little Auratone speaker. And then you'd mic up the snare drum so you could get the snare rattle and you'd put a room mic in there so you could get the sound of the snare in the room. And so pumped into that little speaker, you'd send the sound of the uh, drum machine. In that way, you'd get a bit of a room ambience and a snare rattle on there so it'd make it a little bit more real. But you'd also do things like you'd you'd, uh, get a drummer to come in and play the hi-hat track uh, or you'd get a percussionist to come in and put shakers over things and uh, put congas on things. So it gave it the real feel in amongst it. There was also the employment of click tracks, which was a a big step as well because people used to make records without click tracks and you were governed by the tempo of the the song. And then any overdub you had to do to that, you'd have to map to the tempo of what was already played, which made it a little bit tricky sometimes. Um, And so when we started using click tracks, it meant you could guarantee that you could edit that and put it into the previous song. So we'd often be constructing uh, records with click tracks and editing drum tracks around cutting up the two-inch tape. The voice for the voices. This is the VO Radio Show. Who do you find, out of all the people you've worked with, which which one has been probably the easiest? There's a kind of uh, whole whole lot of people that would fall into being uh, really good fun to make records with. And uh, the most creative would have been Ricky Lee Jones. I did a uh, recording session with Ricky Lee Jones. She came to Rack Studios to work with or look at working with Alex Sadkin. And at that time, Alex Sadkin was doing a Boom Crash Opera record. um, And I'd been doing pre-production with Boom Crash Opera whilst they were waiting for Alex to finish a record downstairs. And I can't remember what the record was. So he and Will Gosling were making the record downstairs with Boom Crash Opera. And I was in the other studio with Ricky Lee Jones. Uh, where she was doing demo sessions and she would get Alex to come in and have a listen. So for about two weeks I spent with Ricky when she was in a kind of writing and creative stage of her recording process. Uh, I don't think I've worked with anybody who has as much attention to detail when it comes to vocal content and vocal melody and notes 
The Pogues were not easy to work with, but they were really good fun to work with. And they were a raucous Irish punk. And when we came to recording, they'd been held out of recording for two years because of the Stiff Records situation they were in. They weren't allowed to record for two years, so they'd had two years to write new songs, uh, play new songs, work live. And when they came in to record Fall From Grace, they were really top of their game, fantastic. So they were really good to work with. And whenever you were on a session with Steve Lillywhite, he would steer the session so that everybody was kind of putting in their maximum and getting a kind of benefit from it. It was really good. There were other sessions that might have been with other producers that might have been a bit awkward. They would maybe breeze into the room and give you a few ideas on things and then breeze out again and everybody would be left thinking, uh, what did that mean? <laughs> and, but then we'd kind of, the, the people that were in the room would come up with something and then we'd find out a little bit later whether that's the right thing or not. Did you also always have a fake fader? <laughs> the producer's fader? No, we didn't. Uh, no, we, uh, no, we were in honesty around the rack recording. So when you left rack, you went obviously freelance as an engineer. Was that at the point where you tied yourself to one producer? Oh, no. The, the, um, the, uh, well, when you're an in-house engineer, the, the, you come with the studio quite often. So uh, there were probably more, I was probably working with more producers when I was at the recording studio from a budget perspective. I, I, I got to do a few records with Steve Lillywhite after freelancing and uh, made work with Dave Matthews Band and Morrissey in a freelance capacity, which was good fun. Um, the Pogues, I think we'd done the Pogues records by the time I'd, I'd gone freelance and they were they were both recorded at Rack when I was in-house there. I, I did see a Sound on Sound interview with you talking about the miking up the Pogues. They were really interesting from a recording perspective to work with because there were so many ac acoustic instruments and as a band they were really good and, and so you wanted to get them all playing live. We didn't really want lead vocals live and we didn't expect to get whistle. And a whistle is an instrument that would bleed over everything as well. So for a couple of reasons, we maybe wouldn't have put the whistle down at the, on the backing track. But um, the backing track would have gone down with drum kit, bass, guitar, accordion, acoustic guitar, sitern, banjo, guide vocals, sometimes piano. But one of the benefits about Rack Studio was it had a beautiful wooden floor, high ceiling, a partition going down the middle. So you could have your drum kit in one, one part of the, the space and windows that you could see through, everybody could see each other. And we had lots of screens that you could move around, high, tall ones with glass windows in and short ones, which were just padded. And so they had really good acoustic qualities, but they had really good soundproofing qualities as well. So you could really box up a fairly loud guitar amp and we could get away with the, um, the, the volume of that in the room. And so we'd have a vocal booth, we'd have an accordion booth, we'd have, you know, all the instruments were booth off. I had great mics at Rack as well. We had really good mics to choose from, and they've probably still got the same ones. They're, they're vintage Neumanns and RCA ribbon mics, and uh, yeah, it was good. See, good old days, good old days. Well, good, good old equipment, good good old room. I mean, the room uh, is a uh, old workhouse, so it's you know, I don't know what century it is, but it's uh, definitely a very much a listed building in St John's Wood, and it's got beautiful acoustic qualities to it. And the desk was an API mixing desk, which was uh, late 70s desk they would still be very, very sought after. Now, some of the albums you've worked on, of course, have been, you know, like Morrissey and, um, as you mentioned before, Dave Matthews Band, um, The Pogues. But you, you're also involved with um, the Red Hot and Blue album, the, the first one that came yeah, out. Yeah, Steve Lillio was, was asked to produce that, and what a fantastic project, fantastic group of musicians and creative people around it. There was um, 
Sinead O'Connor on that, but I actually didn't get to meet Sinead O'Connor on that, as in we recorded the string session for the track that she had on there. And we also used that same room for uh, Annie Lennox. So, yeah, and then uh, at the same time, there was... All, uh, we did, did the Pogues. The Pogues were on there as well, weren't they? Miss Otis Regrets. Yeah, with Kirsty McCall. What a great singer. So, yeah, that was my involvement in that. But Steve was whizzing about all over the place. What a great record for him to make. It was had uh, Iggy Pop and Deborah Harry. It's a fantastic record. So some of the acts you've worked with, do you remember many of them? Because <laughs> there's been a lot of yeah, no, I was the person in the room that, as the engineer, one of the jobs of the engineer is you've got to be focused and you've got to at least know the name of the artist you're working with at the time. So, yeah, there was... Um, yeah, Dave Matthews, fantastic. That was a great record made at uh, Bearsville Studios, upstate New York. Beautiful environment. I don't think it's actually a studio anymore, but um, what a great place. Um, steeped in rock and roll history set up by the founders of uh, Woodstock Festival and the uh, manager of uh, Janis Joplin and Bob Dylan. What a great place. Mm. And great record, great record to record on. Really fantastic band. And a couple of things we did on that record that we that helped, that we would have um, Dave and I guess guitarist at the time uh, who was on the record. So I had them set up in one room with their acoustic guitars and Dave would have a guide vocal mic. And Carter was upstairs with, with his drums in his own little space. There was a space down the end of the room that had the bass player equipment in, so he'd go down to his little booth and play in his booth. It was quite funny because it was a, a massive recording studio. The studio floor space was really big, but we figured that the acoustic environment was too big for anything that we were actually recording on the backing tracks. And so uh, when you looked out to the recording area, there wasn't anybody. So that was quite odd, not seeing anybody. That was the uh, that was the first Dave Matthews Band album. That was the one that became a big hit, is that correct? Uh, Under the Table and Dreaming, and it was the first album they made with BMG on their five-album deal of that time. They uh, had massive record company support. They All the green lights had been pushed. They were a kicking band. At around that sort of same period, you also were worked with Steve Lillywhite on the Morrissey album, Foxhall and I. At a studio called Hookend Manor in uh, the... British countryside, beautiful place. Mm, that would have been a slightly different experience, I would imagine, to uh, working with the Dave Matthews band. Yeah, it was very different, very, very much a British record. But there's a, a lot of similarities. Both occasions were residential studios. Both occasions, they were away from the Madding crowds, so you were secluded, you didn't have the interruptions of life, going home, paying the bills, doing the washing, all that stuff, that was all taken care of. So in that environment, you can really be creative and in the zone for however long it takes to make the record anyway Chris I know you've got to run have a great day and uh, hopefully we'll catch up very soon thanks Andrew yeah I, I apologise for cutting you short but there's, I've got lots more stories uh, we can't wait to hear them cheers thank you in a world in a world where only the best voice will do realtimecasting.com okay well that was Chris Dickey fascinating stories about the old days of recording and not that long ago really well mm. it doesn't seem that long ago to us because we're old codgers what an amazing what an amazing career he's had though mm. but there you go so that was Chris next week we're not announcing a guest yet because we're going to see if we can track down Rebecca from Source Elements to come in and have a bit of a chat be a good way to test um, uh, Source Connect now yes maybe we can get it? all three of us on it get all three of us online I think that's definitely a go cool yeah. sounds right. good good well I'll look forward to next week Lovely. Have yourself a good week and uh, we'll catch you down the pipe then. The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. To polish your next audio production, check us out at voodoo-sound.com. Find professional voices simply all in one place. Realtimecasting.com, including me.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.